You're an all-star, get your game on, go play. Hey now, you're a rock star, get the show on, get paid. Welcome to another episode of the NRL All-Stars Podcast. This is Barnsley, back for another Talking Footy episode this week. Long season, we've just had finals week two, uh, back to the pointy end this weekend with the third week of finals to determine who's going to be the grand finalists. And this week we've got Matty Person back on board. It's been three or four weeks for Perso. So welcome back to the Talking Footy Podcast, mate. Cheers, Barnsley. Always good to be a part of it. It's um, Yeah, always good to talk a bit of footy. Sure is, and obviously Supercoach is done and dusted, but for everyone that's still listening to the NRL All-Stars podcast, NRL All-Stars does have the Supercoach episodes, it's our bread and butter, but we also do have the Talking Footy episodes this season, and they're going to continue on through the final series and also after the grand final for a bit of a season review as well. So certainly keep on listening, they're out at the end of each week, and it's going to be a really big few weeks too, because obviously we've got four teams left. So probably the first thing to talk about, Per so is what happened last week. So Ooh. big games. I think that we were all really looking forward to it. Um, it was kind of one of those things where maybe before the final series started, our expectations were too high because the quality of the top eight yeah. was really good, and we've spoken about that a lot. Week one Andy, of the finals, anticlimactic, wasn't it? It was. It was. <laughs> week one was still very good footy. A um, few things that tarnished a little bit. Week two, Parramatta Eels forty to four over the Raiders. 38 to 12 rabbits over the sharks. A um, little bit anticlimactic to say the least. Uh, I'll, I'll be honest, I was um, extremely disappointed overall, just talking about the weekend of footy, because it was one thing that it was uh, the games, I don't think, were good enough standard for the, the time of year that we're up to now with the semi finals. But the other thing, too, mate, is that when you've only got two games, it's that first week where you kind of go, I feel a bit deflated. There's not much footy on. So you only had two games. Yeah. You wanted them to be really good, but they weren't really up to standard. And the first week was a bit of a belter, really. There was some cracking games in that. Um, but yeah, there was just like uh, the Eels came out firing. The Raiders sort of didn't really fire a shot. And it was pretty similar with the, the Sharks. I think the writing was on the wall, letting 30-odd points in against the Cowboys the week before. South so just sort of dominated them all game too. It was lucky the um, the Swans had a good game on on the Saturday because uh, that was enjoyable watching that. So at least we got something. But <laughs> yeah, I ended up flicking over to that. It was really that good. was a cracking game of AFL. But anyway, that's not what we're here to talk about. But uh, it was, it was <laughs> I can't from, promote the AFL. <laughs> go from that back to the South Kerala game, but it, it was uh, yeah. Anyway. Well, I mean the Para Raiders game. It was the 29th minute before the Raiders even put anything on the board, and by that point. You know, the Eels had already thrown up four unanswered tries. And, you know, they scored in the sixth minute. It came very easily for them. And when you're having a look at it, you know, the Raiders were never really in the hunt. The numbers were startling. You know, the Raiders had 41% possession, um, a completion rate of 69%. Um, The Eels almost had 10 more sets more than them. And just absolutely killed them in every sort of, every metric. The Fords, I thought, were really good. The, The run meters in total, the Eels were just under 2,400 and the Raiders were flat out getting over 1,600 run metres. I actually thought yeah. one of the things that the Raiders could do well with better match the Eels forwards because the Raiders have that strong forward pack. Yeah, 100%. Didn't, didn't really happen with the metres. Um, you know, I thought guys like Tapani and Papali didn't really stand up like I thought. 47 missed tackles to 25. Um, you know, if I guess you sort of know with the Raiders, if their forward pack isn't standing up, 
and the Eels attacks clicking and they're not defending well out wide, they're just going to be in all sorts of trouble. And I think that's what we saw. Yeah, it's 100% what happened. The Eels just came out of the blocks and they dominated the middle. Like you, you talk about the run metres. I don't think it was a Raiders forward that ran for over 100 metres in that game, was it? And the, 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 a couple of the Eels players were up there already halfway through the first half. They just absolutely dominated the middle and they just gave all the time in the world for Moses and Brown and Guffo to do their thing. And they just they were never in it. They were just never in it. Yeah, and look, let's talk about the Eels first of all. I think it was really impressive and it's one of those things for them for five odd years where they're always in the media. Uh, they're certainly always in fans' minds as well, speaking about how they always choke at this time of year. Haven't won very many finals games at all under Brad Arthur. So it was a really important win for them because it really got the monkey off their back. And everyone's gone very quiet. And, you know, even when you got takes on a team and even when it's warranted, when they, you know, buck that, it's always good to see people actually come out of the woodwork and give them credit. And I haven't seen that enough for the Eels, I don't think. And I'm, I've been critical of the Eels over the last four or five years. And I've actually believed in them more this year, but I think they deserve a hell of a lot more credit than they've been getting. Gutherson and Moses, I thought both had blinders. Gutherson had two tries. He's ran the ball 24 times. Consider the fact that the week before he only ran it seven times and got killed for it, which yep. he should have. But he hasn't equally, as much as he got killed for the seven runs last week, been applauded for his 24 runs that he did, you know, against Canberra and then the two tries in his involvement. And Mitchell Moses had a 15-minute early mark because he was just outstanding. He had the ball on a string when he was kicking it. I thought they missed a kicking game against the Panthers massively that he provided. Um, scored a oh, fantastic 100%. solo try as well with his two line breaks, his tries. Those two guys, per se, uh, they deserve so much credit. They've been having pretty good seasons and sort of going under the radar when compared to other other big guns from other clubs, but they're crucial to the early success this year. You watch that the first semi-final against the Panthers and the Eels, the Eels were still in that game right up to their eyeballs until Moses went off. His kicking game was sort of matching clearies enough to keep him in the game. There was only a point between them at that time, and then he goes off and they just dominate. So he's definitely crucial. But you, you look at the run metres of that game from the Eels, it's absolutely phenomenal, really. Dylan Brown ran for 321 metres from 29 runs. He had a massive game, and that, like, that's your foil to, to Moses and Gutherson who do all the silky work, and Brown just gets through that much work and creates the opportunities. Like it, Campbell Gillard, 190 metres, Paolo, 164, Sean Lane, 221, Papa Lee, 232, Murano Nakora, 168. Just ridiculous, the amount of work they got through. They, they just dominated that. The forward pack just dominated them, and that's, the Raiders were just never in the game. It was pretty ominous, and if the Eels can repeat that, it's going to be tough to deal with this week as well. I will say for the Raiders, you know, it's hard to find positives, and certainly they'll be looking at trying to find some positives to go into the off-season. I did think out of all of them, you know, one person that did still stand up, and I I think has stood up most weeks, was uh, young Hudson Young. So Hudson was pretty good again. Obviously, he wasn't... Oh, I guess, you know, the prolific attacking weapon that he has been in other weeks, but he still managed to run the ball 14 times, which is one of the best four 
Raiders forwards and he's playing on an edge. He still had a line break assist. Yeah, he didn't have any errors. He didn't concede any penalties and he only missed a couple of tackles. You know, he he actually had a pretty decent game considering how much they got flogged. And it was probably the only one that I could really single out in it. Um, and he had a really good season. I actually think that he deserves a Kangaroos jumper on an edge. Uh, and I, I'm really happy for him because he's someone who a few years ago, I really didn't like him. You know, I really don't like guys with attitudes that come through that I haven't really earned the right to even have any attitude. Um, I like guys that are aggressive, but he's someone who got done for that eye gouge. He's someone that in his younger days got done for uh, illegal substances and got banned for that. You know, it's it's just, I didn't like, love him coming through, um, but I'm happy to change my mind and the work that he's put in over the last two years and how well he's played this year, I think was punctuated with that game that they've got done 40 to four, but I thought he was still a bit of a standout for the Raiders. He certainly pulled his head in. That's for sure. He's had a breakout year this year. He's been fantastic for the Raiders. And yeah, like you said in that game, look, he was still trying right to the end, which is not really, he's not known for his, like so much. He's more like a kick-out style player that relies on sort of attacking stats to make him look like he's had a good game. But he got through a lot of dirty work in that game, more so than the front rower. So it was a pretty big game from him. He's just especially the back end of the season, he just pops up everywhere. Some of the tries he scored, like he's put tries on for himself with grubber kicks through the lawn and he just really, really matured as a player. It's uh, it's good to see um, he's turned himself around a bit like that. Yeah, 100%. And a couple of the lowlights for the Raiders, uh, I don't want to pile on Savage too much. I think a few people jumped up and went, wow, what a try when he scored that solo try which was great to see, and it's something that he does have and is exciting. But it it didn't make up for the three tries that he basically led in himself, and he had some pretty bad errors. The one where he got clean bowled with the ball and a pretty mandatory take off a grubber uh, was bad. It's hard to see Charzy making that mistake, isn't it? You know, that's sort of the guy he's replaced. Yeah, it is. And it's sort of, I understand the Raiders putting their faith in young Savage, but at the same time, they were a side that, I guess, needed to win games and they couldn't really afford much error. And he was someone that was going to give them that because he's only young and still learning. So I, I thought oh, he's raw had... ass. Like, he's a future talent for sure, isn't he? But he's going to have those mistakes in him. He's what, it's 19. Mm. Yeah, and so it was, a, it was a pressure cooker environment for him. And he certainly, um, he certainly got cooked a bit, but he'll be better off for that, I think. You'd hope that he'd come through better. But someone who's got a lot more experience, per so is Jack Whiten. And I, I thought Whiten started off this year really well. I really thought that he started playing well. I thought that he actually earned his origin jersey and he played fantastic, arguably one of our best in game one for New South Wales. But then from that point, he just seemed to go off the boil. And, you know, he had an error and two penalties, which was, you know, very Jack White and like um, kicking game all over the shop a little bit, which again can happen with him. But he just, he seems to have digressed as a half because it was always a case where he sort of started off as a player. It was a real strong runner of the ball, and that's why he stands up well when he gets put at centre or off the bench for origin teams and stuff. But as a half, he actually got better for a couple of years at being a bit bit of a better kicker at times and a better playmaker for sure. The last, I don't know, couple of months of the season, he seems to just be running the footy, and that's what he did in that game. He was just basically running the ball all the time. And I think that that's a big question mark out of this, and you really saw it get exposed. If you got your halves... Your best one of your best players in your spine being white, and, and he, all he's doing is running the ball like a lock forward. How far is that really going to take you? You know, and I, I think that's a big question mark going into next year from that game. 
Oh, you hit the nail on the head there. I think that's where his position is now, is lock forward. Especially with Elliot moving on, he can provide that bit of link. He's got a bit of ball playing, but he's, well, you see, he's a runner for first and foremost. If they could find someone else in the halves, like Jamal Fogarty, he's no world burner, but he, he's a good game plan manager and he, he steers the team around really well. If you could afford to move Whiten from 5'8 to, the, like, I agree, he's a gun set of Whiten. <clears throat> that rep level always kills it when he gets the opportunity, but it's just that little bit of element when they need to go to the next level, that, that spawn at the moment, they sort of don't really have it. They've got a really good pack. Savage is raw and young. He could be a future super talent. And you look at the, the hooker, you've got Wolford and Starling, which complement each other well, but they're not quite a, towards the elite end without, with the other top clubs. And then you've got Fogarty and White. And so that's probably the difference between the Raiders being around that sort of bottom end of the top eight and being able to move up to a premiership threat is just a few things they need to tweak in the spawn, isn't there? Yeah, there is. And like really when you look at it, you kind of say, well, they need a big signing. Like if they signed a Jerome Hughes before he got signed or a Cameron Munster or something like that, I think that's sort of what they need. Um, yeah. They needed one of those in that spine and they just don't have it. So oh, look, finishing up on this game, I think the Raiders season's over, but You'd say that they overperformed, though. So, I mean, that's a positive to finish up on. I don't think many expect them to make the top eight, especially mid-season. So, you know, you, I would actually see that as a win for the Raiders. I think it's a good season oh, for definitely. them to build on. From where they were in round seven, they were sitting bottom of the table with the Tigers. And they <laughs> they came home with a wet sail to get in the eight and then did a little bit of damage, knocked the storm off. It's from I'd say that's a successful season for them, something to build on, that's for sure. Yep, 100%. And the next game was the, the Rabbits, 38-12 to 12 winners over the Sharks. I thought the Eels would, would win really well, um, but I actually thought that the Sharks would edge out the Rabbits in a thriller, so I was quite surprised at that one. I was uh, of the same opinion, Barnes. I thought it was a coin toss, the, the Sharks-South game. I was really expecting a high-quality sort of either-way type of game, but yeah, didn't happen, did it? No, and look, it was disappointing because, like, it wasn't it, even though sharks the sharks lost convincingly. It was actually pretty depressing from both sides. Like, the rabbits had a sixty eight percent completion rate to the sharks sixty three percent. You're completing in the sixties, which is horrible, it's just bad. You know, Especially at this time the, of year, yeah, that, that's just <laughs> that's not really acceptable at the best of times, is it? But in a semi final for both teams to be completing that low, it shows you the quality of the game just wasn't what we were expecting. No, not at all. And you know, the missed tackles, the Sharkies had 45, which is really bad at this time of year. But even the errors, like 15 and 14 each, that's a lot of errors between both sides making them. Um, and it just, I, I didn't think that the Rabbits were that dominant either. I just, I thought it was a pretty low quality game, to be honest. So, and the numbers kind of throw that up there. Um, I think looking at the, looking at South first, um, I, I sort of felt like, they did what they needed to to win that game. Uh, I did think that there was a few pretty bad calls. I thought I don't think I think the Sharks would have lost anyway. Don't get me wrong, anyone. There was no way oh, the Sharks were winning it, but there was some out. howlers in it. That, that dropout from Nico Hines is what I was going to mention <laughs> is the worst yeah. one. Like Hines, there's no way that ball is anywhere near not going ten, and he falls on it very easily as well. And there is no way you can even construe it as a knock on. And I made the comment watching it with about three different calls. The referee has made a call based on what he think might have happened 
not because he's seen something to indicate it actually did. And you can't call can't call games like that. And yeah. there's nothing to say that Nico ever knocked that on. So they still again, had a captain's challenge too, didn't they? At that stage, yeah, they yeah they did. I can't um, believe they didn't challenge that. Uh, it was, uh, but there was a few calls like that, wasn't it? Where you just go, you know, the quality of refereeing there. If that was a a thirteen twelve game, you'd argue that you know the Sharkies got robbed a little bit. But you know, because it wasn't, you know, obviously the Rabbits were going to win anyway. But I, I don't want to focus on the refereeing. But it was one of the takeaways from that. It was a poor quality game, and I don't think the refs helped oh, it very much. Nah, everything about it was poor. <laughs> you hit the nail on the head there with the yeah, the refereeing. It certainly wasn't their best game for the season. Both sides were fairly poor. Uh, Rabbits just seemed in those clutch moments. They just they did what they needed to do to win the game. That's sort of been the Rabbits all season, really. Their their completion rate hasn't been great all year, but they've just got enough talent in their spine to be able to pull off the and take advantage of the moments that they need to. I think that was probably the most disappointing thing for if you're a Sharks supporter. They've been fairly solid with their defence all year, and then the two semi-finals, their defence has been awful. And their completion rate's been awful. And that's probably two of the strengths that got them to the position they are in to get into the semis. Uh, you can understand, like, Fitzgibbon, he was fairly blunt in his assessment of it, and rightfully so, too. So, mm. interesting to see how they bounce back next year. They've got the cattle there. They've got some good depth. And I think it'll be a good learning curve for the as a team. But, yeah, the, I, I would imagine Fitzgibbon would be very disappointed with their two performances in the semis. Yeah, and like it did probably, I guess, expose the Sharks' attack as well, where they do have such a heavy reliance on Nico. And you, know, you understand yep. why he's had a huge season, but he struggled to get things happening. Uh, he had one line break, one try assist, uh, and you know, he just uh, that, he just didn't have the impact, though, to give them that two or three opportunities, which they normally need him to do for them to be able to score like 24 points. You know, normally they'll put up 24 and three of them will be directly from Nico one way or another. Another one, somebody else will chip in with something. Uh, it also probably exposed the reliance on him by the fact that I think the Sharks have been fortunate in other games. Like Moylan had a bit of a purple patch, uh, particularly for about a two-month period where he's absolutely killing it in the middle of the season. Yep. And he's really fallen off now. Um, yeah, he's got went- caught. Whether that's because he's got a contract now, you know, you don't like to say those sort of things, but it has coincided with him getting a contract and now falling off in the form that he's had. He just doesn't, he's not running the ball as well. He's not creating the opportunities as well. He's making mistakes as well with errors. Um, Some of the passes he's throwing aren't direct errors recorded for him, but they are ending up in errors from his passes. Uh, And then Braley, I thought, Started off really well. The first half of the season, I loved young Braley, and he went quiet as well. Will Kennedy's been up and down, and he had a down performance. So it really did accentuate how much pressure was on Hines and some of those other guys that have been standing up. I don't think anyone else did in the spine. Uh, that's it's like Will Kennedy's a good footballer, but you look at the the top sides, that they've all got elite fullbacks in the modern game, and that, that's probably the biggest thing that they're lacking is that a lot to take them to that next level. You can't really win a comp in this day and age without an elite fullback. And that's, you know, Will Kennedy's good, but when you haven't, look, you know, you haven't, if you had Will Kennedy to fullback and you had Harry Grant or Cook at Hooker and you had Cleary at halfback and Hines at 5'8", then that sort of complements it. But when Hines is your main man at seven, you're Moylan at six, Braley at nine, and look, it's a good spine, but it's just not quite, at that elite level, is it? 
No, it's not. Um, and look, you'd, you'd hope that next year they'll get better for it, and I think they will, but there is some glaring holes there. Uh, and even when you look at some of the other guys that have stepped up for them, like I thought they were really poor. Like, in a lot of ways, I think Ray Mintz had one of his better seasons. And, you know, he's still got the errors in him and the, and the silly penalties and stuff, which he had to this game. But he only ran the ball 12 times, and it's one of the few games where he's had zero tackle breaks. You know, and he just was pretty non-existent. And then you look at someone like Militalo, who for a period of time, someone might have actually had an argument to say he's, he's in the top two wingers to have a rep jumper for about six or seven-week period. He was just killing it. And then his work rate, you know, he, he has nine runs in the game. And he's, you know, gets his line break try, but nine runs was half of what he was doing when he was doing really well, you know. And he, their involvement there, you know, they were strike weapons for the Sharks that have just fizzled out completely when it's time to sort of step up. Yep. And they really miss Talakai in that game too, because he is the one out of that, the back five that does all that work. Like everyone, he sort of got carried away after that Manly game when he just had to put Molotalo over for two or three tries and you're just carving up and made Morgan Harper look like a under-six player. But he's just been consistently making 150 metres a week at centre, doing his business, not scoring tries or setting up tries since, really, but he's just been doing all that dirty work. A bit under the radar too, because people are sort of thinking he's out of yeah, form. Yeah, because he's not getting the tries. That's all. Get carried away with that performance and think, oh, he's not playing well because he's not repeating that sort of ridiculous game that he had. So oh, he he's just he's been so consistent all season with and defensively as well. He's, which was always his sort of um, Achilles heel in recent seasons. He he was fantastic for him this year. They really missed him. But yeah, it's it. Um, I think a lot of the, the, the Sharkies sort of unsung players are the, the front rowers like Rudolph and Hamie Noelle and, and Royce Hunt. I think they've had really good seasons. So there's... I was quite surprised with you, Ellie, because I, I thought that too. And then since finals started, he hasn't been playing much. Like he's averaged 26, yeah. 27 minutes for the, for the first two weeks of finals. And I, I was kind of surprised at that because I thought he was really good and his minutes got relegated. Yeah, which was strange. Maybe he's carrying a niggle or something. But, I mean, that's something they can work with for. Like, salary cap-wise, I think the, their roster's is fairly well managed. Mm. So there's um, plenty to look forward to in the future for the Sharkies. But, you know, look, look, they probably overachieved a little bit this year, if you want to be an honest assessment of them. But on the back of a pretty easy draw to finish second, I think where they finished up at fifth is probably about where they're at as a club at the moment. Yeah, and that's a it is a positive for them though because if they finish fifth rather than second, you'd still say it was a big improvement and it's in exactly. the right direction. So it's, I don't really buy the the narrative that oh yeah they finished second but they had an easy run because it doesn't really matter because they could have finished fifth or sixth and it still they still should have gotten pats on the back as a really positive season, an improvement in the right direction and something to build off for next year. So I'm I'm still impressed with the Sharks' season. I will highlight the forwards before we continue on to Souths a little bit more. Um, I was quite disappointed with some of their experienced forwards. Yep. Um, I know the way you're going straight with this one because I picked it up straight away too with Murray's draw. Mate, McGuinness, six runs for a start. Uh, but for Nuke and, and Wade Graham, yep. Wade Graham played 46 minutes. Um, for Nuke and played 55 minutes. Fanugan in particular was lauded as a big signing. Now I've I I have had many disagreements with people who haven't been happy with me because they've taken this the wrong way, but I've always felt Fanukan is overrated. 
And I saying someone's overrated doesn't mean that I think they're no good. I think Finucane's good. I just don't think that he's as big a signing as what people made out to be. And I don't think he's someone you want to tie up too much money in. So I never thought he was as good a signing as what everyone thought. He's still a good signing for the locker room, for the leadership. He's got the winning mentality. He does great stuff on the field that you want next to you when you're in the trenches. All great. But, you know, he is older as well. And, geez, his missed tackle was one of the worst ones that you'll see for final series for years. That's, for me, straight away, I said it to the wife. I was sitting there watching. I said, the Sharks aren't on tonight. When he mm. missed that tackle, it was like the softest, like it was it was very unfinuken like for what he's known for too. Well, he'll he'll always put his body into it, right? And especially exactly. in the finals game. And then that was a classic under sevens jersey grab. Yeah. And uh, he dropped uh, his head straight away. From that moment I knew the Sharks weren't winning that game. They just weren't up for it. Well, there was a few of those ones, unfortunately. And when you're going through like the work rates, you know, Nakora and McInnes both had six runs and Graham also had some really bad defensive lapses too. And he looks well past it. And- oh, poor old Wade Graham. He's been a great player for a long time, but the game's worth passing now, isn't it? That's he's a couple of too many injuries, too many, I think. Yeah, and like uh, I think that it's been quite in, quite a lot in the media this week on, you know, should Wade Graham be re-signed? And I've... I say to everyone, like there's often, most of the time, it's not a yes or no answer. It's always about value. And I made exactly. the comment a lot of times that he'd actually be a really good signing if he's willing to take a minimum salary and come off the bench. You know, if if it was me, if I'm the Sharks, I'm re-signing Wade Graham to a minimum contract. Yep. I'm putting him off the bench for 20 minutes and I'm reinventing him as a 13 off the bench. He can take Fafuda's role that they've yep. had him this year on yeah. 600K less than what Fafuda was on. And the leadership and, and locker room and training paddock stuff that you're going to get from Wade Graham exactly. is going to be worth a minimum contract. And, and the it, markability in the media and all the rest of it too. He's very good yeah. on that side of the, the game as well. So that, that value, you can't sort of put a price on. If you get the salary cap right, and that's it. You'll, you give you 300K a season. You'd have him for another two years there doing that 20-minute bench roll, wouldn't you? You would, and it's a good signing. But all of a sudden, if he wants 400k a year, then you go, well, it's it's time for him to look somewhere else. And that's probably where it's at at the moment because you can't play him for 50 minutes a game now or start no. him. Um, that's, that's well past it. It'd be interesting how Finucane bounces back next year because he's had a really good career and he's the type of guy that you love. You don't like to see those type of guys go on a bit of a downward spiral at the end of their career and fizzle out for a couple of years and be benched. And, you know, that would be unfortunate if that's going to come for Finucane. So hopefully he bounces back. Uh, but for South, I actually didn't think there was many shining lights. I have to say, I thought Latrell was pretty quiet. Only had the nine runs in his 80 minutes. Had his line break try assist, but overall, you know, didn't do a hell of a lot. Uh, Cam Murray, though. Yeah. What a guy. What a final series he's having. He has got to be the informed forward in this final series. The line break try was great. He had also a try assist as well. 38 tackles. He's just, he is, he's been probably the best forward in the final series, I reckon. Oh, 100%. He's an absolute weapon, Cam Murray. Uh, it's, it sounds funny to say because he's in New South Wales, plays New South Wales, and he played Australia, but is he underrated, Cam Murray? He never sort of gets the raps. I think he, he deserves, is. I don't think. Look, it, it sounds a bit funny when you say that, but I think he's underrated, Cam Murray. He's an absolute gun. You know what I think it is? I, I think that it's um, he's he's been copying some injuries the last couple of years and it's taken him out for stints of time when he started to get some momentum. And I also think that he hasn't had those big games at rep level that everyone sort of stands up and watches. And 
I think those two things have kind of not worked in his favour of getting his recognition. Yeah, probably right. Look, look at Origin this year when he got knocked out early and that sort of thing too. So, but uh, it, like it, it shows how much South have wraps on the bloke by giving him the captaincy this year at the young age, and he's just uh, <laughs> where he's going to go in his game. His sky's the limit. Cam Murray, he's a gun. No, oh, he's he's in for another big week this week as well. Uh, which look, let's go straight into that. Let's talk about this round's games. Uh, we have tonight, recording on the Friday, the Cowboys versus the Parramatta Eels at Queensland Country Bank Stadium. Uh, we've got word that Simonson is actually going to be in its centre, replacing Opacek, uh, and I don't think they'll lose too much there, really. I did think the Corey was going to go to centre, and I thought that was probably a better move. But Yeah, that's look, what I would have done, but no yeah, uh, it might end up happening even, you know. They might end up doing a, an old switcheroo and, um, and just having a bench right. utility, so... Surely Blake goes to centre and Simonson plays right wing. That's the way they lined up for mm. the first half of the season. Well, well, it certainly gives old Wunger a bit of a break from the high ball. Yeah, exactly. Which is, I reckon, that, that was that was another thing. He didn't get peppered at all last week after the week before. So I think the Cowboys probably would have peppered him on that that wing. So I'd say he plays centre and Simonson on the wing. I'd surprised Nick Coro didn't. He just didn't put Nekoro there because he's done a pretty good job at centre when he plays there. He provides something. He's solid in defence and he, well, he's an underrated player, Nekoro. Yeah, I mean, look, let's let's run the comb over this one as far as what we think is going to happen, mate. Um, North Queensland at Country Bank Stadium. I, I'm going to say outright, if it was in Parramatta, if this was at Combank, I'd be back in the heels all the way. But yep. Parramatta are $2.20 outsiders around about. And I think a lot of that's on the strength of it being up at Townsville. Uh, I'm going to be controversial here. I think that this is the end of the North Queensland Cowboys season. I, I just think that Parramatta's, the way they looked last week and some of the football that I've seen yeah. from them for the last six or seven weeks when they've been on, oh, I think they're ready to fire. And I do think the Cowboys are one of those sides that I don't know if they've got that top gear in them. Like, and that's not any disrespect to them, but... I haven't seen it that much against the top teams where they have these real blinder games. Like, I thought the Eels were outstanding yeah. last week, winning by almost 40 points against the Raiders side that has been one of the hottest property sides coming into the finals. I don't see that from the Cowboys. I see good games and good contests. Um, but, you know, you look at even, what, six weeks ago, the Roosters absolutely absolutely yeah. smashed them by 36 or something. You know, they just killed them and it was just no contest. I think that it's going to be a good contest. I think it'll be close. But I actually think the Eels are going to win this one in a boil over on the back of that spine. And what I saw from Gutherson, uh, from Dylan Brown and from Mitchell Moses last week. And then you throw in the fact that Reid Marnie's actually playing not terrible. And, and then the Fords are just eating up other Ford packs. I, I just think that um, I just think that the Cowboys are going to struggle to contain the Eels. Yeah, I, I, I think the bookies have got this one wrong. I'm actually surprised the Eels aren't favourites, to be honest. I think they've just taken too much into the um, North Queensland factor, home ground, week off, and heat and all that sort of stuff. But you're right what you're saying about the cows. They've had a fantastic season and they're a team on the up, but they just haven't got that next level yet that they can go up from what I've seen. So I expect the Earls to win. I think it means they've, they've turned up. All final series really so far. I think it means they'll turn up and I think they'll get the job done. 
I see it being a Western Sydney grand final myself, but we'll get on to the other game shortly. But yeah, well, the Cowboys have had a fantastic year and they'll put a great account of themselves up. I expect this to be a really quality game of football. But I think when it just gets to the the bump and grind of it, I think the Earls have got too much experience in the forwards. They'll dominate that middle and then that, that'll just give too much. They've got too much experience in the spine over the, the, the cows as well, I think, even though... I know the Cowboys touched them up a little bit earlier in the season, but it's a different kettle of fish in the semi-finals. You can forget about anything that's happened mm. prior to that. It's a completely different competition. I, I don't just think the Earls have got too much experience and too much class. I think they'll have too much for the cows. Yeah, and it's interesting too. Like it's that whole week off a momentum thing again. You know, I think the momentum that the Eels have coming from that really good win last week will really help their confidence. And then you look at what what the Cowboys did. They had a 32-30 thriller over Cronulla yeah. in then week one. And you might say that's a good win, but look what happened to Cronulla the following week. You know, the, Cronulla yeah. was letting in points that game, uh, but the Cowboys were doing the same thing. Their defence was letting in points too. And Cronulla was fans, exposed the next week. Yeah, and from a fan's perspective, that was a cracking game of football, wasn't it? But from a coach's perspective, both coaches would have been throwing their toys out of the court mm. after that game. That's not what you want to see in a semi-final, is it? No, coach. definitely not at all. Um, so, yeah, it's. I think it's going to be a really good game of footy, though, and I can't wait for tonight to kick off. Moving on to the second game, uh, and before we do that, I do need to mention the fantastic sponsor of the NRA All-Stars podcast in Top Sport. You can go to topsport.com.au today and have a look, but they are one of the best bookies to bet with in Australia. They're 100% Australian-based and owned, and they've got fantastic service. But the other great thing they've got, Great odds in every market. So you can have a look at sport, but certainly for racing as well. And if you're going to do it, make sure you use the promo code for this podcast to create an account. That promo code is SC All Stars, all one word. And you can create an account today on topsport.com.au or just download the really easy to use app. Uh, but this week, you know, I've already tipped my hat a little bit. The Parramatta Eels, $2.18 outsiders, all over that one on Top Sport. But even if you like uh, the try scorers, Mike Acevo, $1.80 odd. Uh, you're going to get him a really good value at the moment to score against the Cowboys anytime, and I love that one as well. So topsport.com.au, go jump on there today and create an account. Penrith Panthers versus South Sydney Rabbitohs. Another absolute blockbuster, but you kind of expect that in the prelim finals per se. Um, it's going to be a good test for both sides, I think, because obviously the Panthers haven't played much footy as a team and they came into the week one of the finals and, and demolished the Eels 27-8, to eight, but it was off the back of also Mitchell Moses going down in that game. But they were, they were very good, and I think they put a lot of critics to bed a little bit. But, that's again, we haven't seen a lot of them. Uh, whereas Souths, I think, have shown their holes but continued to win and step up in big games. At a core stadium, uh, I think that's going to help Souths out. And, obviously, all the eyes are going to be on someone like Latrell Mitchell. So... I'll be honest here, uh, even if Latrell Mitchell has a big game, I do not see South being able to beat the Panthers this week. That's That would be my special of the week out of any sport. I, I think I'm getting all over the Penrith Panthers to get to another grand final. Oh, it'd be a class game, but I agree with you 100%. The Panthers is too clinical. I, well, the, the, the Bunnies have got the game that can trouble um, Penrith with the, the sort of ad-lib play and and they have been close encounters in recent times, but I just think every time Penrith have just got that last level to get the job done. And I, I, I think as good as Lock and Elias has been this year, like he's been probably should be 
talked about more in the rookie of the year circles because he's been fantastic. He's no he he's played going deep in the line and what he provides for the ball at the back to give space to Mitchell and um, Cody Walker has been great and he's got better as the year goes on. But his kicking game compared to Nathan Cleary's kicking game is just not on the same planet. And it's that's the Panthers forwards are obviously going to hold the Bunnies forwards, so they're not going to get defeat in that part. And on the back of the the, the Panthers forwards and Cleary's kicking game, it'll be enough for them to get home. Yeah, I, I tend to agree as well. Uh, and it's it's look, I I hope that the Bunnies big guns turn up. Um, Cody Walker, someone who's been playing well. Uh, the last couple of months especially, but he can go missing in those type of games. So you just hope that he steps up for him because I think they need him and he's probably the X factor. Like you expect Latrell to make his mark. You know Damien Cook's going to do what he needs to in that spine. Uh, you know Cam Murray's going to be a leader for them as well. But Cody Walker, you know, he could go either way. And if he's on fire, uh, it could be a real tight one. But you mentioned the Ford pack and I reckon that's the other big spot for them, Perso. Um, their back line as well. I mean... Their outside backs can very well give up some points to Penrith, and that's going to be really interesting because you'd hope they don't capitulate out there because the Panthers can be very clinical and really go for the threat in these games. But the battle of the forwards, you know, there's been some forwards that have been better than what you expected for the Rabbitohs. Like, they've yep. really come off the back of performances from guys like Tritola, uh, even Burgess. You know, those guys have been better for them than what anyone expected them to be. Even Hevili's been great off the bench for him this year, and Ham Sello. What Demetrio's got out of those guys this year has been phenomenal. Yeah, and I mean, and Sele's going to be there, but obviously um, they've got some injury problems and yeah, Havili's going to be gone. Burgess is out. It's, yeah. So that's a couple of middles there that's, that's probably going to hurt them. And Arrow's got that groin complaint, which, you know, I've done my groin a couple of times. And it's not a nice injury. <laughs> no. And like, yeah, running straight lines is, is, is a lot easier, I guess, but it's, it's not it's not going to be easy. So if he's underdone, he could get real cooked out there, especially playing on an edge. They'll target him badly. Um, and that could really hurt him too. So, yeah. And look, I mean, I, I don't want to mention the labour on the back line, but if Johnston is also carrying an injury, and he's got a, a, a rookie in Tass that hasn't played a final series before this one. You know, it's you just think you need just going to target a Tass Johnston side all day, and they could come up trumps a lot of the time. Well, I think Johnston's been ruled out. I think I just saw that just before we started this podcast. Uh, so who were they thrown in? Mansour or Kenner? Uh, Kenner, I think. I haven't, it was Kenner or Thompson. I think Thompson might be back. But yeah, yeah. That's a, it's a massive blow. So that's going to really hurt them. It's um yeah look they they're going to need an all time performance from Latrell Mitchell, and I think really really good backup performances from Cody Walker and and Damian Cook for them to have a shot at being able to upset Penrith. And I just don't think they've got that in them. I I could see Penrith winning this quite comfortably. Yep. Yep. Agree. Which, not a blight on South Susan after, you know, not many teams go well after Wayne Bennett loses the place, but I think Demetrio has done a great job with them to get them to where they are this year. I think that I'd, I'd be extremely surprised if they can knock Penrith over. Well, it also goes to show, doesn't it, the, the quality of the season that we've had from a lot of teams because, you know, South go out this week, you say, fantastic job. You know, they've, they've made it to the top four. That's well and above what anyone thought, even a few months ago what anyone thought. Cronulla went out and said the same thing. Raiders went out and said the same thing. You know, all these teams that are losing can actually hold their heads up pretty high. 
Um, and the South Sydney Rabbitohs are no exception. If they don't make a grand final, they've still had a really good season and they've got a lot to build on. And I will finish off just by saying, per se, just quietly, because I've been pretty critical uh, about the early season stuff, about Adam Reynolds being the buyer of the year and the big mistake the Rabbits made. And I disagreed with like the 90% consensus on all of this stuff. Very, very quiet now, isn't it? <laughs> you know, the, the Broncos oh, have been playing footy for a few weeks. Oh, turned around. <laughs> That's fantastic club management. Like the Reynolds, no blight of Reynolds, fantastic player. But he's only got two years left in him, haven't they? And they, they see what Ilias can bring and over 10... Like, we might be talking about Ilias as being the best halfback in the comp in 10 years' time. Mm. And to see his game develop through the season, like, to a point where um, Demetrio was that annoyed with him, he pulled him off in that Dragons game and benched him, like, hooked him, good old-fashioned hook. But it didn't phase the kid. He came back and he's played better footy ever since, you know. So it's a, it's a fairly um, good example of what his character's like as so I already be a good footballer and it, yeah, you can't say South have done the wrong thing there. It's cap management is a very hard thing to do. A lot of clubs do it very poorly. So you, you got to give a feather in the cap for South for that. Yeah, 100%. And, and where they've gotten to now, you know, I think that it um, it really does put all that argument to rest on their decision-making and how they've yep. gone, gone about things. And the fact that they're going to end up keeping Latrell Mitchell and Cody Walker as well um, probably puts all that to bed. Look, Let's talk about NRLW because it has been a stellar couple of weeks and we ran out of time last week to actually talk about it. It's finals time this week. So the Roosters finished on top of the table, won five from five. Um, but the biggest thing on the weekend was I watched the Eels-Broncos game and it was like 12 all or something for ages. And then the Eels just came over the top of them and the Eels actually had to win but also had to win by enough to beat the Broncos for and against because it was out of the Broncos and the Eels to make the top four. So it was a very exciting contest in that regard. But for the first time in the NRLW history, the Brisbane Broncos aren't going to take any part in finals. And the Eels, um, not one of the uh, foundation sides of the NRLW, go into fourth. Now, that's the positive spin on that game. The negative is, you know, we've got the Roosters on 10 points, the Knights on eight, the Dragons on six, and then four to six, they've all only won one game each. So, you know, it's uh, that's probably the negative part where you've got one team winning one game that's, that's in the top four playing finals. But the Eels were very spirited and it was a really good game to watch. And also, you know, obviously we've lamented for a few weeks the fall of a NRLW superpower in the Broncos despite the efforts of their veterans like Brigginshaw and so forth. The Eels came through Trump's. Yeah, that was a great game of footy. I watched it. Then the Eels got out to a fair lead there and the Bronx came right back into it and then the Eels ran away with it again in the end. But um, I, I really loved Brigginshaw's emotion at the end of the game. You know, that just shows how passionate those girls are about um, the sport that they're playing. They're bitterly disappointed not to make the finals. And it, it, people don't sort of realise how much these girls sacrifice as the pioneers of the sport. You know, they're, they're giving up time from work and family and all these sort of things. They're not getting paid squillions of dollars. So the the passion of it, I just love it. And the way this, like, it's just amazing the difference, how quick the girls, the, the, the change. I've always liked the way they played their footy. But even this last, this series now, you know, so that even they've got more shape and attack and even they still play, and what I love about them, they play off the cuff and they're not so structured as like the men's game, but you can just see how far developed it's gone in such a short space of time. 
Yeah, definitely. And you saw a bit of that attacking prowess on the weekend with the other two games too. The Knights the Knights and Dragons are going to meet this week in one of the semifinal mm. games. And the Knights did them 30-8. to eight. And they actually obviously did that a little bit under strength, the Knights as well. So, I mean... That was a that was a real statement game. Do you think that the you don't ever think that a team's going to kind of hold back? But you know the, these two teams did know they were going to meet each other in week one of the finals. Do you think the Dragons took the foot off a little bit? You know, Jamie Soud maybe left a few moves in the back pocket and just sort of didn't worry too much about the game. Or do you think that it's a sign of things to come this week, where the the Knights from out your way, the, that girls team for the Knights, uh, just been really dominant this year, finishing second, and they absolutely drilled the Dragons, who I actually thought was going to win, you know? And even, like, Tegan Berry scored in the 20th minute, and what a try scorer she's been. I think she's got, like, 10 yeah. tries or so or something so far. She's an absolute freak in the try scoring department, but ended up 14-8 at the half. And I sort of thought, oh, the Dragons can still come back and win this, but the Knights just came well over the top of them. Yeah, yeah. Uh... <laughs> I don't. I don't think Dragon. I don't think the girls have got it in them to hold anything back, have they? <laughs> you watch the way they play; they, <laughs> they absolutely leave everything on the field. That's what I love about the, the, the women's game. But um, that night side, I, I think it's a Knights Jooks grand final. Is what I'm calling. But um, I know the Knights recruited pretty well this year. But I just love their front row. So, you got Millie Boyle, who's your sort of workhorse, big motor, big minute player, and then Caitlin Johnson's just explosive just the, what they give and then your young Hannah Southwell at uh for, at halfback Jesse Southwell sorry Hannah and her sister they're both um shout out to the Tara Bears my young blokes junior club they both came through there but um it, what they provide off the back of the forward pack is and is like that's good footy and I, I that's what I think I think it'd be Knights and um Bruce's Dragon's good side but yeah I, I tend to agree with you too um, it's and like I, I love I thought Boyle was such a big signing for the Knights as well, and I love watching her play. And she's a different mold to some of the other uh, big big forwards in the NRLW. Like she's, and you get you get this in the men's game where you see sort of the outliers, and she's one of those big girls that's a real athletic big girl. Yeah. And she's just a workhorse too. Yeah, you don't like you don't see that with a lot of the the big props in the NRLW. You don't really see the mold that that Boyle's got. And there was like a, there was a point in that game where one of the other girls actually inadvertently kind of ran into her, and she just got flattened. <laughs> and Boyle went and picked her yeah. up to make sure she was okay. <laughs> Boyle didn't even move. It was like walking into a statue. And that's what sort of compliments him, because Caitlin Johnson is such a different player. She is that sort of explosive, bigger player, that a bit of white line fever. They just seem to work really well. Mm. Well, it's going to be a cracker grand final and a good final series for the NRW. The other game is the 38-12 win for the Roosters over the hapless Titans. Um, and look, it was probably flattering for the Titans, to be honest. The Roosters were just killing it. And I think one of the biggest things is, you know, Jess Sir just got her try and she she looked really good. I thought Isabel Kelly was really quiet. She's probably my favourite player in the NRLW. And she's up for uh, player of the year again this year as well. She was pretty quiet. And the Roosters still won 38-12. to 12, uh, So that's that's a pretty big deal. She even got a sin bin, which doesn't normally happen. And, and Kelly ended up off for 10 minutes. What about having Bremer out and you can bring Taylor in at fullback? <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah that, that, that was nice. And then Taylor got the second try. Destiny Brill was brilliant on the weekend too. Two two really powerful tries running from dummy half for the hooker. And I don't think that she – I'm not sure, but I think that maybe that was her first try she scored and she ended up with a double. Yeah, yeah I think so. And I really like the 5'8". 
at the Chooks to tomorrow. I think she's a great player. And she's probably the best goal kicker in the comp too. Yeah, yeah, she is. Um, and that's something that I think is going to really get them home in the grand final if they get there. So, yeah, look, exciting matchups this week. Um, unfortunate for the Titans, but they'll get better at that. Um, obviously not being in the league for too long. And the Broncos as well. You know, dynasties always have to end. Uh, I'm sure that they'll be better off for it next year and be able to rebuild. But it, it, the NRLW season really punctuates how it's been for Brisbane fans, though, hasn't it? Both the Broncos girls and boys teams both out of it and um, in disappointing fashion as well at the end of the season. Like you, you, I don't, that, that wouldn't have happened in history yet. And I don't think it'll happen too much where you get both the men's and women's NRL sides going to the last round to make the eight and both of them failing for the same club. Yeah. I think the men's side's a bit of a different kettle of fish. There's a bit of drama going on there, I think. Well, that's a great segue because that's what we're going to talk about next Perso. Um, Walters versus Iken. So, this one's really interesting because I I was caught off guard when Gordon Tallis came out swinging, saying that you know Ben Iken's got a, a made up title basically, and football managers are pretty much useless and they don't. I mean think anything. a lackey. A lackey was the word he used, wasn't it? A lackey, yeah, that's right. Unless you, for unless, the coach, unless you, unless you feel good. <laughs> I, I like Big Gordy, but half the time he's pretty off the mark. <laughs> I thought that was one of them, um, but look, it's just it does. I think that what it did do is it unraveled a storyline that, that is there in the background that, that obviously there's some friction between Walters and Iken. Um And I'm I'm really struggling to understand where someone like Talis is coming from, but also where Walters is coming from, to be quite honest. You know, I think Ben Iken from everyone watching him on NRL 360, uh, can see what a smart football brain he is. He's obviously been Broncos through and through. He's got great pedigree as well. And he knows the game really well. Uh, and as, let's hit Gordy's point first of all. You know, there's 100% a massive place for football managers, and it's not a made-up title at all. Like, and it's like, it's like when people sort of look at a big corporate and say, "Oh, look, the CEO is getting paid two million a year. Just get rid of him. You know, just get rid of the CEO. He doesn't do anything anyway. You know, it's all about the workers and you know all the players on the field and, and the coaches. And it's not the case at all." You know, there's a lot to do in running a big corporate, uh, just as there's a lot to do in running a successful sure. football club. And look at what's happened at Manly Perso. Like, you want to talk about, yeah. you know, how much a, a football office affects a football team. You know, they, by all accounts, they had a top four team the year before. They got a, a really good coach and, and they went like bustards. And, and, even, and they, even the team themselves are blaming the inadequacy of their football department. So you can't have it both ways, you know. You can't go in NRL 360, which some of these journos have done, and say, well, merely has been underdone by their football department in the execs. And then the next week, turn around and say, well, the football department execs don't matter. They made up jobs. <laughs> oh, it, oh, there's obviously a rift with the old boys there at the Broncos. Talis is obviously on... Um... Kevy side, whatever's going on there. That, that was a pretty outlandish statement. But there's been a few little things in the media the last couple of weeks, like Tyson Gamble coming out and saying that Reynolds is coaching the team pretty well, what he said two or three weeks ago, who was then leaving the club, but then he got brought in. Ezra Mann got dropped and Tyson Gamble got put in for the last game of the round after he came out and said that Kevy Waters can't coach, basically. And even Kevy's um, words this week... Ben Iken, I don't have any major problem with him. So I've got plenty of minor and immediate problems with him. 
That was the most... Not a ringing endorsement, was it? <laughs> yeah, so there's definitely something going on there. And that will probably explain why they fell off a cliff because they had a fairly successful season. People remember that Broncos are sort of battling for the spoon last year. Okay, and if... I would say if you said that any Broncos fan at the start of this season, if they finished ninth, they'd be happy with that result. But because they performed really well and they were sitting in the top four, finishing ninth is probably viewed as a failure now, especially with the club mm. so prestigious as them. So to where that came from and what happened, to where they just dropped off a cliff over the last... Look, they beat Parramatta at Bankwest and then they lost to the Tigers the next week <laughs> and then they just fell off a cliff. There's, oh, there's something, I don't know, there's something not right there. So, and then all this stuff starts coming out, so the whispers are there. There's obviously a rift with management of some sort. Yeah, and you don't really know who it's with or whatever. You you obviously look at the rumours, but you don't know for sure. But I will say, like, if Kevin Walters really has a problem with Icon, and if people like Gordon yeah. Tallis obviously do, I think that they've both got very short memories because at the end of the day, Icon wasn't there when they got the wooden spoon. Kevy didn't do great that year. And people like Icon were brought on board because the club needed change because it wasn't going in the right direction. And that was under Walters. So, you know, you can't really say Icon's not doing his role because they have been better well, since he's gotten there. Six months ago, Icon was the best thing since sliced bread. He's turned the club around. They've gone around. We're sitting in the top four. <laughs> I don't know. There's, if there's a rift between... Walters and Iken, that's something surely that they need to handle in-house. Obviously, yeah. something, whatever's going on is not getting handled. It's filtering through the club and there's a, there's a vibe in the club that's, that's not right. Yeah, and Gordon's obviously close friends with Kevy and, you know, so that's it's going to happen, but I don't think that him coming out is, is helping anyone. And... Oh, it's certainly not helping, especially when he's a member of the, like he's in part of the, the Titans coaching staff as well. So. Well, yeah, I mean, they're sad as well. He's got bigger things to worry about than trying to dig into what's happening at the Broncos. I mean, he's been the first to be highly critical. I love Gordy, he's awesome, but he's been highly critical of what's been going on at the Broncos for years and he got shunned out apparently for a fair long time and he was quite vocal about that on all his media outlets. And so, But how do you yeah, think that the Titans uh, football manager feels after hearing Gordy say that about football managers? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Oh, I love Gordy too, but sometimes he's uh, he's hard on his sleeve. Should be put back in the chest for a few minutes before he speaks. But you know he does he does fire off. Yeah, but that's what you love about the big fella. But I think uh, my take on it, just to finish off on the the Broncos and I converse Walters, uh, is that I think that um, I think that Kevy is feeling the pressure and he's he's starting to buckle under it, and I think he's looking for places to blame or. Um, and as you know, it's natural as as people do. And he's probably voice that to Talis and all of Walters' supporters are probably looking for other people to blame other than Walters too, because it's really hard sometimes to look in the mirror and say I'm actually part of the problem. And I think the Walters definitely is a part of the problem. And I don't see mm-hmm. them doing much better next year under him. And I would say that he's probably one of the low key people who um, has his job on the line. Um, there's a lot of people that will talk about Hook and and some of these other more fancied sackable candidates, but. Walters is, oh, is right there. I think, yeah, I think Walters is first candidate to be punted. Mm-hmm. Steve Walters was in the coaching staff and he quit last week as well. All this is going on. So that's mm-hmm. his brother. There's, I don't, whatever. Like, I think what they did bring in the old boys in is sort of give put and instilled the mentality of what the club is about and what they believe has done to a certain extent. But I think 
Kevy's as good as a player he was. I don't like from the outside looking in. I don't know if he's got the nous as an NRL coach. No, I don't either. But it's going to be interesting to see how the off season unfolds for them. That's for sure. Especially if we're going to get these slinging matches in the media, which is going to be lots of fun. Uh, Barnsley spray of the week. Oh, here we go. Oh, um, <laughs> this is my new favourite segment. It was always the the uh, the the rewind legend rewind. But since you've introduced this um, Barnsley spray of the week, it's it, <laughs> oh, it's it's it simmers it simmers for a week. I always decide <laughs> on this part of the podcast at the start of the week, and I just let it simmer for five days, and it's it's ready. It's all ready. Spray of the week this week. Young Tyrell Sloan wanting a release from the Dragons. And some of the media coverage of it, got to hold myself back a little bit, even though it's the spray of the week, we get unhinged a little bit on it personally, but Jesus Christ, how how this is a poor Sloan story from some of the media has got me beat. Um, I cannot believe that a 20-year-old kid that hasn't even gotten a good crack at first grade yet to establish himself as someone that can even ask for a release or ask for a starting jersey, he's given the time of day by the media like has happened this week. Sloan got to start the start of the season. That is the biggest thing here. He got an opportunity to start and he failed, okay? Uh, people are saying, including Sloan's management, oh, you can't just, you know, drop a kid after he's, you know, he's only a 20-year-old. He needs to be able to make mistakes and stuff. He was getting outplayed by the bloke in reserve grade. You know, the Dragons are under pressure by their fans, by their board, by their coaching staff all year to make sure they make the finals this year, make it a successful season and whatever. Why are you going to sit through and try and develop a kid that's making mistakes when you've got another kid that's absolutely blitzing it in reserve grade for a few weeks that were both fighting him out for that first first grade job at the number one jersey? Like it made complete sense that Sloan got dropped. Now, we've seen it for even a day per so, and it is my one of my bugbears with modern day players. It used to be 30 years ago, if you know you got your first opportunity and you blew it and you got dropped to reserve grade, most of the time, and I'm sure it's what Hook said to him, work hard in reserve grade, be the best player on the park every week, be the best player in New South Wales Cup, make him have to pick you again in first grade. You know, and he didn't do that. He was actually really average in reserve grade. He made glaring mistakes defensively. He's trying stuff that's not coming off. And what he's doing on the field is a big reflection of what he's doing off it. And this, I'm going to really open up and spray him here. And he's a young kid and he might learn from it and get better. That's fine. But he's copping it today. That is a reflection of poor work ethic. He is not putting in the work on the field. He's not doing the hard things to earn the right to do the fancy stuff. He's not doing the work on the field. And then off the field, he wants to take all the shortcuts. He just wants to get a first grade jersey to start at fullback and wants it guaranteed regardless of how he's playing, regardless of the work that he's putting in and regardless of reputation. He has not earned that right yet as a 20-year-old that hasn't even played barely any first grade. So I cannot believe the Sloan apologists out there in the media just going after the Dragons for this poor kid. This poor kid has not put in the work on and off the field, and you can see it in his game. You can see it when you watch New South Wales Cup. And if he earned the right and he played to his ability this year, he would have usurped Ramsey and at least gotten a spot on the wing, or one of them would have been shifted to the wing or something, or he would have just had the number one jersey. He didn't do that. He's got the opportunity now with an off-season to actually be the best number one the Dragons have and to earn it. But instead of that, he wants to take a shortcut, throw his toys out of the cot and run away and get a job somewhere else. I, I'm so glad, Perso, that the Dragons said, nah, we're not going to release you. Oh, 100%. Oh, 
uh, let's not forget the, the guy that he ended up choosing is Cody Ramsey, who hasn't really cut his tooth in the NRL yet at all. So <laughs> he got, yeah, he's riding off. He got picked in the um, Indigenous All-Stars game. So he hasn't proved himself in first grade. Got the opportunity, made a, a couple of blaring mistakes. As you said, got job better edges. Wasn't good till halfway through the year in Reggie's either. Like he didn't start coming good till the end of it. It's like, well, you're stuck behind Cardi Ramsey, bite your teeth in, have a good off season and prove to Hook that you need to be picked. And if you're that good, and he does certainly have the talent, like I would say his talent and ability potential is much higher than Ramsey. If you're yeah. that good, back yourself. Have a exactly. have a blitzing off season and take the number one jersey. Yeah. Look, I, I can't believe that, the lack who, of competitiveness that some of these competitors actually have. Who's who's going to want to put their hand up and sign him? Well, I mean, there's that From as what well. He's shown. Look, and it would be it would be such oh, a shame. Oh, behind Cody Ramsey, I should be playing first grade. Well, who for? Who's going to pick up? Uh, it would be such a shame for a young talent like Sloan to actually get a release and then to sit out in the wilderness for a year because no one actually wants to sign him. You know, and that's. I think that they're probably pinning their hopes on the Dolphins, but that's probably what will end up happening. You know, if the Dolphins don't sign him, he'll end up in the wilderness. So I don't even know what he's asking for. He's better off playing New South Wales Cup and at least he's in the shop front window in New South Wales Cup. Like, you can't tell me, if he was blitzing in a New South Wales Cup, surely he would have like six or seven suitors by now to sign him. Well, if he was going that well, it wouldn't take much to, to like, no disrespect to Cody Ramsey, but... If he was going that well at the Dragons in New South Wales Cup, he'd soon get his spot back over Cody Ramsey, wouldn't he? Exactly. Yeah, look, I, I think Cook's done the right thing here. And I think the Dragons have done the right thing as well. They've got a contract with him. He hasn't earned the right to be, you know, undroppable yet. And, you know, he can develop in New South Wales Cup fine and still take that jersey back. I hope that this is a real good learning curve for Sloan and that he turns around, works heaps hard this offseason, improves by 100% and takes back the jersey because he's got all the ability in the world to do that if he's got the right attitude. Legend Rewind. One of my favourite front rowers of all time. An immortal. Big Arthur Beetson. I uh, am obviously a Chooks fan, so I've got a real soft spot for Arthur Beetson. Yeah, he played for the Tigers too, Big Artie. Yeah, debuted for the Tigers, which a lot of people forget about. Um, played prop in second row. Uh, some of his, you know, when you're looking through what he achieved, Clive Churchill medal in 1974. Um, Rugby League Week Player of the Year in 1974, inducted as an immortal in 2003, along with the Hall of Fame. But it doesn't, it's never going to give him the accolades that his ability actually deserves. Um, And that's just a point in time thing. And I think it's probably something that's worth mentioning because a lot of people, especially newer fans to the game of the last couple of decades, will overlook because you look at his, all these numbers and stuff, and it isn't quite there compared to some of the other greats of the game. But it's just because of the time and the time that he came through. He was actually playing in Brisbane at the time. Um, so he was um, debuted with Redcliffe. And at the time, you know, it was the New South Wales Rugby League. Uh, it wasn't the NRL like we know it today. So Brisbane, uh, Queensland had their own competition. Uh, and he eventually obviously came down, was signed to come through and, and play with Balmain. Um, but because of that, he didn't actually start in the basically the NRL. So that was one thing with him as well. But he also had a, a pretty stellar career um, elsewhere too. Obviously, like I mentioned, he played 74 games for the Tigers between 66 and 70. Um, and that was after playing a few years for Redcliffe already. Um, interestingly, he went, like we said, with some of these players um, back then, he went mid-season in 68 
to sign um, and play 12 games with the whole Kingston Rovers in the Super League. Uh, but then I, I reckon, like, he finished off with Parramatta in 1979-80 before going back to Redcliffe for a year. But I think it was that 1971-78 period where he played 131 games for the Roosters that really cemented him. Uh, and that was a time that I remember fondly for me because obviously I'm a Roosters fan. Also played 29 games for Australia, though. Um, and it has to be said as well, Captain Australia, and as a young, uh, as an Indigenous player, um, that was a big deal at the time as well. And it's something that's worth mentioning. You know, he's he, he's a really great Indigenous role model as well and one of the great Indigenous players ever. Uh, and that's a big deal. But as far as the type of player that he was person, he, he is the number one attacking big man of all time for me. You know, he was absolutely massive, um, especially at the time. You know, when you got guys... He's listed at like six foot two hundred five kilos. He was like 115, 120 kilos some of that time. And he was that big, but then he had this speed and ball skills. Like his offloads were unbelievable. And he had a great work rate as well, despite his size. I, I don't want to like it sounds like I'm talking down to Arthur Beetson by mentioning Andrew Fafita. But the good things in Andrew Fafita's game is sort of a little bit of how good Arthur Beetson was if he times it by about a million. You know, when, when Fafita yeah. was really hard to tackle when he had the offload going, when he was attacking the line, when he had that, that raw power. It's the stuff that Arthur Beetson had, but obviously times a million, like I said. Yeah, well, he was a bit before my time, Hardy, but you, you watch uh, past games and stuff, especially like the early origins and stuff, and just the enigma around the block, everyone... Everyone that ever played with it talks about how he, he was a pioneer with that ball playing sort of prop. And the, the guy that comes up in the comparison of Thurbert doesn't get the raps he deserves is Steve Roach. He, Steve Roach modeled his game off of um, yep. Bertson. And he was that same sort of skillful sort of, not even with offloads, but like short passes and all that sort of stuff is what Artie did as well, which was like no other sort of props did that at the time. But um, yeah, his career was phenomenal. But his eye for talent after he retired, like he was a recruitment officer for decades and his eye for getting talented kids out of the bush and getting them into to, um, NRL contracts and like from Harold Matson onwards was phenomenal. He, he just had that, the eye for a game. Like he, he just, he lived and breathed it. And from everything you, you talk about everyone that's known him, he's just the most humble human being you've ever met as well. Like he was the biggest thing one of the biggest superstars through the 70s. And, you know, you wouldn't have known it. You'd just have a beer with anyone. You'd walk up to, and uh, at a game and just sit there with with the kids and say hello. And, you know, he was just a superstar of the game, really. Yeah. It, it, look, it's it's really sad that he's passed on, but he was such a great player. And why not, you mentioned his, um, his scouting and stuff, but also not, yeah, being fairly unassuming as well and pretty humble. You know, one of my personal memories of Arthur Beetson. He was a, uh, a co-owner or a part owner of um, Como Pub down this way. And um, he used to always be at Skylar Bay Oval down at Como in the Southern Shire in the Cronulla district. And I remember him all the time. He'd be sitting on the sideline watching the games, watching everyone play. And he'd stay there all day. And he'd be just smashing through the pies, you know, Arthur Beetson style. Um, but my own personal memory, and I still get goosebumps when I think about it. You know, I was so chuffed. I was I was coming off the field when I was about fourteen, and I heard him talking to someone out the side of my ear saying, "This this one, number eleven. I like how he plays footy. He's got a good game." 
I like it. And then I looked over and I saw it was Bigardi and I was just, I was so, so happy. That was one of my happiest football memories. And he gave me the thumbs up and he said, keep going, mate. You're going real good. And you know, coming off at halftime, that did it for me as a teenager. That was one of my best memories of all time. Probably where I peaked per se, so I didn't get much better from that. But <laughs> <laughs> it was still a great memory. And I used to love just seeing him there, just smashing a pie on the sideline every now and then and watching the footy. He just, he loved footy. And he gave so much to the kids and the communities and everything. Just loved it, didn't he? He just loved footy and just loved people. He was always that approachable. He just, you could take him anywhere and just anywhere in the country and he'd sit there and watch under sixes through to first grade. He just loved watching footy. And again, going back to his playing as well, you know, one of the the key things that um, often overlooked, especially from newer fans, it's State of Origin, they started in 1980 and he was in the inaugural Origin series where he captained the Queensland side. And they, they were really under the pump. Like Nobody thought they were going to have any chance, you know, with the New South Wales talent. And he came out swinging in that one and ended up, you know, Queensland winning 20 to 10 in the first State of Origin series. And, you know, as captain that's, of Queensland, at the end of his career as well. It's uh, set up origin for what it is, mm. that game. And that's the thing that people don't realise. Younger people don't realise. That was... It was... New South Wales was Queensland was just residents of New South residents and Queensland residents. And then it was two different comps. There was no NRL, there was a QRL and there was New South Wales Rugby League. So oh, New South Wales Rugby League was always stronger. So Queensland players would come down to test themselves in the strongest league. But then they'd be Queenslanders and playing for New South Wales for years. And New South Wales would always towel up Queensland. So that, 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 Significance of him being there even at the end of his career, just being the heart and soul of that Queensland side, and they gave it to New South Wales, and that's that's where Origin was born. And it was just yeah, I think that, you could just imagine being a fly on the wall with Bigardi there, firing up the boys for this game, going, "This is what we're, this is about. This is what we've been waiting for for decades." Yeah, and you're right. Like a, it's a it's a big what if, isn't it? Like if if Bigardi beats and didn't captain that Queensland side and come out absolutely belting blokes and playing with the intensity and the spirit that he did, would we have origin like it is today? You know, I don't think that we would. And there's that many little X factors in his career that I'll go back to what I said at the start. You don't see in the stats and the numbers, you know, and it's a bit of a shame because if he came through later, like if he came through even in like 1990 or something, he would have had so many more accolades. He would have had so many more achievements and his stamp would be a lot more easier for more casual fans to be able to see on the game. But Go back and watch footage. It was before my time too, and I used to go back and watch so much of his footage because his game was outstanding how he played. It's tremendous spirit, tremendous competitor, absolutely impossible to to stop um, when he had the ball in the hands, and he absolutely would belt blokes as well. But he was the nicest, most humble bloke off the field, and he was the first Aborigine to ever captain an Australian team, which is an absolutely huge honour in 1973 on the Kangaroo Tours. So Arthur Beats and like deserved immortal, I reckon. Him and Lazarus, my two starting front rowers, are the best of all time. You, you listen to anyone that played with him or played against him throughout the era, like you listen to any interviews or podcasts you have with guys from that era. That he's just a presence player, Artie. But mm. he's one of those guys that you felt 10 foot tall if he was standing next to you. I think that says that, that says a lot. Anyone's played the game knows what those sort of guys are. You got that guy on your team. You're a better player yourself. 
Yeah, 100%. And it's also why he was a successful captain and why he was successful in coaching and also scouting as well because people followed him and he was just he was just such a great man. I'm really pleased that we can finish off by saying that that stand got named after him because it was well-deserved and, geez, he was a great player. Um, go and have a look at some clips from Arthur Beats and go and have a look at his game because he was a wonderful, wonderful player and one of the best of all time. Per se, that wraps up the Talking Footy episode for this week. Thanks very much for jumping on board. It was a very enjoyable one, and we've got a huge game of finals kicking off the finals for week three this this round tonight. Yeah, hopefully this weekend these two guys are builders for the first the first week. We're not uh, talking about any climactic semi-finals again, but I, I don't think we will. I think the two games will be good. Yeah, I recommend for a builder weekend per se. Thanks very much. We'll chat again soon. Everyone else, you can... Download or stream the episodes on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify, Amazon, Audible, anywhere that you can find good podcasts. You can also jump on the sponsor of the All-Stars podcast in Top Sport. Go to topsport.com.au or download the really easy-to-use app and make sure you use the promo code SCALLSTARS to create an account today. Follow us on Twitter for all the updates, NRL underscore SC underscore All-Stars. Enjoy the footy this round. It's going to be an absolute belter, both in NRL and NRLW finals games. And... We'll be back next week with another Talking Footy episode. Can't wait to talk all about the greatest game in the world, Rugby League, next week. Hey now, you're an all-star. Get your game on, go play. Hey now, you're a rock star. Get the show on, 